You're listening to Plenary Session. In today's episode of Plenary Session, we're going to talk about an extremely bad tweet by former FDA Commissioner Dr. Robert Califf. We're going to talk a bit about the announcement that Jeffrey Drazen is stepping down from the helm of the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm going to talk about a study that appeared in JAMA about long-term follow-up for antibiotics when given for appendicitis, a randomized controlled trial comparing appendectomy to antibiotics, a very interesting study with a wonderful editorial written by Ed Livingston. And finally, I'm going to talk about an important paper in JAMA Internal Medicine about the relationship between health-related quality of life and progression-free survival. In today's interview, we'll be talking with Bishal Gaywali, who is from the Harvard Medical Portal Group, and he'll be talking a little bit about a theme covered in that last study. So, stay tuned. If you have the time, write a review. It really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter, or email us plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your requests. First, I feel obliged to comment about this tweet that appeared on September 27th from the account of Robert M. Califf, former FDA commissioner. I discussed this a bit online and I lampooned it. I thought it was pretty ridiculous. Um, and But I do think it deserves a little bit more of a discussion. So this is Bob Califf. First, he writes, major clinical trials are science, but also an intense social exercise. Many experts must agree to compromise to reach a common protocol that all can accept. When a trial is done, 100% of experts can articulate something they would have done differently. And that would be fine because I think we do recognize that trials are a compromise. The problem is, of course, when the compromises are not really compromises, but capitulations to the sponsor who wants a preordained conclusion, and those compromises actually subvert the ability of the trial to tell you anything of value about real-world patients. That would be when compromises have gone too far. See, we all agree that compromise is important, but we wouldn't want capitulation. Compromises can go too far. And the other thing is, compromise is fine if the goal is still reliable medical conclusions that actually affect patient decisions, but compromise would not be fine if the goal is simply to generate a trial that's positive so somebody can make a lot of money off that while patients have no useful information. Okay, so there's some nuance there. But that's not the tweet that got my attention. It's the follow-up one. And now we have a social media peanut gallery of quote-unquote experts, many of whom have never designed or conducted an outcome trial. Nevertheless, critique is healthy. In the new era of social media, we need to find the right balance. The social media peanut gallery of experts. It's a very regrettable phrase. It's almost as bad as a phrase I'm going to talk about when I talk about the next segment about Jeffrey Drazen, the research parasite phrase. I think this phrase, this tweet, it captures a growing sentiment from... Mostly I've seen it from cardiology, unfortunately, but from cardiologists who run clinical trials, which is that you have no right to comment about our trial. First, I'll just say that running the trial and being able to think about it critically and comment about it um, are disconnected, uh, just as one who has never built an automobile from scratch 
might be able to drive several automobiles and say, this one is the best car. Oh, but only people who have built an automobile from the ground up are able to assess how well a car drives uh, would be a a ludicrous statement to make. And yet, that's exactly the kind of statement that Bob Califf is making. Um, Somebody who's never run the trial is unable to assess whether or not the control arm was the right control arm. See, that makes no sense. Anyone who practices medicine will be able to tell you if that's the control arm that represents what they were doing. How about the inclusion criteria? Are there any problematic inclusion criteria? Are you selecting patients that look nothing like patients in the real world in clinical practice? Anybody who practices medicine um, or studies the topic might be able to comment on that. What about the use of post-protocol therapies? Are those appropriate or inappropriate? Anyone could comment about that. And what about the other ways in which spin or bias are inserted in the writing of the manuscript? Again, you don't have to have asked your medical writer to write a manuscript for you. You can simply read a bunch of manuscripts and come to the conclusion there. So the statement is patently absurd. Um, If one wanted to say something useful, one would say, it doesn't matter who comments about the article, all that matters is the content of that comment. Is it valid or not? Can it be refuted or not? Um, The comments that are most devastating on social media are not the ones that are patently spurious. The comments that are the most devastating are the ones that hit the nail on the head. That's why Venk Morthy and Daryl Francis and their criticism of ischemia are so devastating because they're right. And if they weren't right, no one would be retreating them. Um, And this is not something that's being really, let's be honest, there's a small community of physicians who are retweeting this, who actually care about bias-resistant, bias-susceptible endpoints. And I don't want to say physicians, I just want to say a small community of people. Let's be honest. There's really only a small community of interested participants, perhaps mostly physicians, who are retweeting whether or not ischemia switched from a bias-resistant to bias-susceptible endpoint. It's not really on the nightly news, so let's not be overdramatic here. And among that community, the people are retweeting it largely because they've been convinced by the veracity of the argument. They're not retweeting it because they somehow have a deep affection for Vink Morthy, for instance, although I personally do, but that's not why most people are retweeting it. I have the affection for him because he's been saying a lot of things that are correct. That's why I like him. So, back to the Bob Caleb tweet. This is very problematic that somebody who should be leading, um, who should be saying, it doesn't matter who you are, what matters is the content of your argument, is instead saying, we have a social media peanut gallery of experts. It's, it's rather disheartening. And it it was. It's a poor decision. I mean, there's no other way around it. It's a poor decision. It furthers this narrative that somehow only trialists are positioned to comment about these articles, which is a narrative that kind of an undercurrent narrative on why we don't have trial-level patient data sharing. Only trialists know how to analyze this data. Only trialists know how to interpret this trial. And let's be honest, what is a trialist? A trialist is someone who Some of them are wonderful academics, incredibly bright, but some of them are very mediocre academics who aren't that bright. Some of them have really pulled themselves up. Some of them have been propelled by the industry. Some of them are colloquially referred to as the kinds of people who are willing to cheerlead for the absolute most marginal product, and that's why they consistently get trials. So there's a range of trialists. Just being a trialist doesn't mean you're some sort of anointed species. In fact, If you want to comment intelligently about clinical trials, the best thing you can do is not just run trials. You could learn a little bit about it from having participated in a couple trials. You don't have to be 
running it entirely, but the best thing you can do is read a lot of trials. By reading many trials, you can gain knowledge far beyond what any one person can experience. And that is actually something that is a virtue of reading, which is something I recommend. Okay, so bottom line on this tweet, it's a bad tweet, it's in poor taste, it's very, very bad, it is really, really bad that it's coming from somebody who should be an expert, who should be saying something thoughtful. Um, it's embarrassing, frankly. It's a, it's a, it's a deep embarrassment. I'm embarrassed that Robert Califf, um is calling people online um, who, let's be honest, are mostly professionals in the exact same field. Um, I haven't seen too many ischemia commentaries from sports reporters, for instance. It's mostly cardiologists, uh, mostly, mostly academic physicians. Um, and to call them a peanut gallery of quote-unquote experts is, is really poor taste. Uh, so I would say this is a fail by Bob Califf. It's his second fail of the last few years. The first fail, of course, is the fail for Sarepta, uh, which was an abominable decision and will likely uh, represent his tenure at um, the FDA as a, as a big missed opportunity and a big fail. Um, but this was another fail, a lesser fail, but a fail nonetheless. All right. Now, the next topic. It was recently announced that the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, Jeffrey Drazen, will be stepping down. Drazen has been at the helm of the New England Journal of Medicine for nearly two decades. Now, I was recently asked by a reporter for Medscape what I thought about the tenure of Jeff Drazen. And uh, I had a few quotes that I, I told this reporter, and I'm going to kind of go through those quotes with you um, because I stand by them. I think that's, that's, the, accurate, that's the accurate quote. I said, I suspect that some will consider the tenure of Jeff Drazen as a success. The impact factor went up. The NEGM published many influential trials. Um, they kind of pushed out the competition at the top of the impact factor. Um, many of their trials were industry-sponsored. Some of them had control arms. Some of them were randomized, and many led to products coming to the U.S. marketplace. So somebody who looked at this would say, wow, Jeff Drazen's done a good job. The NEJM has really led has steered the direction of medicine. They're the ones publishing on the newest drugs, the newest devices. They're the ones dictating how the field is going. So that's a success. I would say it's nice that they did those things. It's nice that they happened to have the opportunity to publish those papers. I would say that I think history will reveal that the Drazen term of the NEJM was a real departure from precedent and actually kind of pulled the field in the wrong direction. Um, and I hope that the next editor, whomever she or he may be, uh, can steer this journal back in the right direction. So why do I say these things? I'll just talk about a few things. Um, a couple years ago, we were in the midst of a important moment in medical history. For the very first time, we had the opportunity through the ICMJE for a proposal for clinical trial data sharing. And this proposal was limited. It wasn't the kind of proposal that people like I would have wanted. It was a modest proposal that the data and information that underlied the figures presented in the primary publication would be released as de-identified IPD at the time of the publication or after a small period of time thereafter. Um, during this debate, this period, Jeff Drazen and Dan Longo published an editorial where they used the phrase research parasites. 
This was their peanut gallery, the research parasites. They said, you know, some are worried about a new class of research person emerging who has nothing to do with the design or execution of the study, but uses another group's data for their own ends, and they're being called research parasites. Now, what was really disingenuous about this was prior to their use of this phrase, which really publicized the heck out of it, um, I had never heard anyone use this phrase. And... I had really not heard anyone voice this sentiment that there would be a whole class of physicians that just kind of parasitizes clinical trials. For years, we've had a lot of physicians who have taken the data from clinical trials and used that to generate interesting things. We call them meta-researchers, meta-analysts, secondary researchers. It's a very noble endeavor. And often some of these researchers are some of the smartest people in biomedicine, they're cleverly thinking about how you can take existing data and answer important questions. Um, it's just a different thing. Just like they're good trialists, great trialists, and they're mediocre trialists, there's good meta-analysts and there's mediocre meta-analysts. Um, there's, nothing, there's nothing fundamentally different. It's just a different space to occupy, a different um, thing to work on. Um, and, but largely, you know, your knowledge base is kind of very similar. Both groups have kind of some, or they should have some deep knowledge of clinical trials. So anyway, they derided them. They called them research parasites. It was, if anything, I think the real truth is it revealed how they truly feel and why they did not ultimately move forward with the ICMJ proposal. Um, so I pointed out that the NEJM missed the opportunity to lead the profession on data sharing. They instead opted to pen a disastrous and wildly lampooned research parasite editorial. Um, it was a missed opportunity. History will view it as a great failure, uh, a compromise, a capitulation that did not need to happen. Um, this should have been the moment where we move forward with data sharing. You're not going to get data sharing coming from the industry. You're not going to get it coming from one academic medical center. You're going to get it coming from either funders, the National Institutes of Health, or journals. Those are the groups with the power to bend the others to the will of the people, because ultimately this is really what patients want. Because when patients participate in clinical trials, surprise, surprise, they do so under the understanding that their information contributes to scientific knowledge, so that even if it doesn't improve outcomes for them in particular, perhaps someday it will improve outcomes for someone who may walk in their shoes in the future. Um, for that to be true, for us to live up to the fact that we're do taking your data and we're doing as much as possible to improve outcomes in the future, one of the things we have to do is use that data as much as it can be used, think about it as much as it can be thought about. And that's not the case when an investigator locks it in their file drawer or leaves it on a folder on their desktop for decades, languishing, while other people who may have good ideas are not allowed to use it. So that's really not the case. Um, so research parasites, missed opportunity. What about the U-turns? Um, Arnold Relman wrote an important article in the New England Journal of Medicine many years ago, which suggested that he feared a coming medical industrial complex where the for-profit motive in medicine kind of took the reins, took the steering wheel, and drove the field in a way that didn't care so much about improving patient outcomes as much as it cared about maximizing profits, with patient outcomes being some sort of collateral incidental benefit, but may or may not be the goal of the entire process. And and insofar as regulation makes you improve patient outcomes, sure, but insofar as it doesn't, um, you know, why why bother? Um, and this was a fear. 
um, that was articulated by Relman. He saw some, I think, early warning signs that this might be happening. One of the classic, classic um, problems was the growing role of financial conflict of interest. And what do I mean by financial conflict of interest? Again, I'm going to be very clear and say I do not mean universities collaborating with companies to run research studies. I mean the large personal payments to physicians' bank accounts from for-profit companies in the healthcare space that simply do not need to occur. They really serve no value. Um, People say, oh, you don't like those conflict of interest. You're opposed to collaboration. And I say over and over, I have collaborated with many, many people, many medical students. Not a single medical student has paid me ten dollars to $300,000 for collaborating with them. Although, I haven't said I've ruled it out, but I have noticed that they haven't, they haven't said that. Um, so you don't need to be exchanging large sums of money to collaborate. In fact, one might view it as part of the auspices of your job, which is simply how I view working with students. Uh, it's part of the auspices of the job. It's part of the job. Uh, you don't get paid extra for doing things that are part of your job. So one of the things that Buzz Relman had noted was that there are some genres of medical writing that are particularly prone to bias. And probably the most important is the review articles and editorials. Because review articles and editorials, they're not just the reporting of data. They are the interpretation of data across many years of many different types. Randomized control trials, sure, but maybe some uncontrolled studies as well. They involve the synthesis of data across many different periods of many different quality. That's really what you want from a good reviewer. And there is tremendous opportunity for a reviewer to insert their bias, their feelings, their colored perception of a product um, in a review article. And Buzz Relman, and this was carried forth by Jerome Cassirer and Marsha Angel, had a policy that you could not have financial conflicts of interest and write these so-called editorials reviews, these so-called kind of interpretive articles. It wasn't long in the tenure of Jeff Drazen where he changed this. He created an artificial and, to my knowledge, absolutely unvalidated ceiling of $10,000 annually from a company, uh, which is if you took less than $10,000, you were, of course, free to write the editorial. But if you took $10,001, suddenly you have to recuse yourself. You're no longer eligible to write it. Uh, I don't know why that's a magic number. And actually, we studied it in a paper we published in the, I believe, Blood Cancer Journal. And we found, I think... There were some discrepancies. It's been a while since I've looked at our, that paper. Uh, but I believe there were, we looked at multiple journals, but I believe there were a couple discrepancies where I wasn't exactly sure um, that that policy was being adhered to 100%. So Jeff Drazen relaxed that policy. That was a U-turn from prior, prior editorial oversight. The last thing I'd say is, is this quote. I suspect history will conclude that the Drazen era was a pro-industry, pro-trialist era and a dramatic departure from the prior editors. The same journal that had the wherewithal to warn of the medical industrial complex in 1980 served to foster and engender that very thing during the tenure of Jeff Drazen. I think history will look back and say, wow, the New England Journal of Medicine, they did publish a lot of important industry-sponsored studies, but many of those studies had poor control arms or no control arms, um, had substantial levels of bias, uh, perhaps even had some distortion or spin, and really did not ultimately serve the interests of patients, but serve the interests primarily of corporate sponsors. 
Um, I think there are many of those articles, and that has been a theme that they allowed. Uh, the other theme, I think, is that they have prioritized the desires of the authors over the desires of the readers. This is something that I think all journal editors should never forget. But a journal editor's duty is to the reader and the patients, the, the patients who participate in the studies and the readers of the journal. The duty is not to the author. We must bend the desires of the author to the desires of the reader. That's the goal of being a journal editor. But we saw under Dr. Jeffrey Drazen, the New England Journal of Medicine seemed to do the opposite. It bent the will of the reader and the will of the patients to the desires of the author. It did that on data sharing. It did that in the case of Rocket AF where there was some controversy and somebody could have said, look, we want to independently audit this data, but it did not do that. The journal instead said, we trust you to audit the data as you see fit. You tell us what you found. Um, these are ways in which the journals are capitulating to authors. And if I may speak a little extemporaneously, why is this the case? Well, if you care about raising your impact factor, you want to publish papers that guide FDA approvals of drugs and devices. And if you want to publish those papers, you have to give the impression that you are very sympathetic to the people who control those papers, which are the authors and the companies. And that's what the journal has done. They've, they've put the welcome mat out for companies and authors to bring their high-impact papers to the journal. They haven't put their welcome mat out for patients and readers to get from the journal what we need to practice medicine. And that's been the major shift in the journal's policy over the last 20 years. And that's why I look forward to, although I have my doubts, that the next leader will be substantively different and take the journal in a different direction. The next topic. A wonderful editorial written by Ed Livingston for JAMA entitled, Antibiotic Treatment for Uncomplicated Appendicitis Really Works. Results from five years of observation in the APPAC trial. So what do you need to know? Well, when I started out as a medical student, I got interested in evidence-based medicine. I wondered why there were some things for which we did have randomized control trials that confirmed what we thought. There were some things for which we had randomized trials that actually flew in the face of what we thought, but there were some things for which we didn't have randomized trials at all. Over the years, I've learned that there are many medical practices that doctors feel are parachutes. And like a parachute, it would be ludicrous to test in a randomized trial. So what do you need to know about parachutes? Of course, if you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, your probability of death is very, very, very high. It's probably 99.99999999. There are a few case reports of people surviving free falls from great heights who did not die. So that's why I didn't make it 100. If you jump out of an airplane with a parachute, your probability of death is very, very low. It's something on the order of seven per 10 million jumps, and that's a statistic from the National Parachuting Association that my colleague, Michael Hayes, found. The reason I know so much about parachutes is that many years ago in the British Medical Journal, there was an article that was provocative. The article asked, did you know there are no randomized trials of parachutes? And it made the point that it would be ludicrous to ask for such a trial. And in fact, it would be ludicrous to ask for a randomized trial for an intervention that takes mortality from nearly 100% to nearly 0%. It's an absolute risk reduction of 99.99999999%. It's very, very good. But do we have things that good in biomedicine? And the answer is we probably don't. The first piece of evidence that is the paper by Tiago Pereira and colleagues in JAMA, 
with John Ioannidis that showed if you looked at everything in Cochrane, there was only one intervention with a very large consistent treatment effect on mortality that was ECMO for neonates. It was something like absolute risk reduction of 40%, nothing near 99%. Um, it was also suggested by a list that has been circulated through some email servers I'm on um, that was published in the British Medical Journal by Paul Glasiu that says, uh, if you ask physicians to name practices that really are like parachutes that we don't need randomized trials for, they in fact can do that and there can be some things on that list that you and I would say, hmm, you know, that probably is a parachute. Uh, but that list is um, 50 to 200 items. Uh, it's not thousands and thousands of items and we do hundreds of thousands of things in biomedicine. So this is just a tiny fraction. But one of the things I noticed in around 2005, 2006 when I was a student is there were some specific medical practices that people were saying would not be studied with randomized control trials. And here's one. This is from John Worrell, a philosopher of science. What exactly does the view on the special power of randomization amount to once that it is agreed that even for therapeutic claims, non-randomized evidence can sometimes be effectively conclusive. Note that everyone, even the staunchest advocate of the virtues of randomization, in the end admits this, even if it's only the small print. After all, everyone agrees that there is no doubt that aspirin is effective for minor headaches, that penicillin is effective for pneumonia, that appendectomy may be beneficial in the case of acute appendicitis, and so on and so on. Yet none of these therapies has ever been subjected to an RCT. There is, note, no hint of second best here. The effectiveness of these therapies is regarded, surely correctly, as at least as well established as that of therapies that have been successfully subjected to RCTs. Okay. So the claim here was twofold. One, the factual claim that at this point there had not been a randomized control trial of appendectomy for appendicitis. And two, that it surely works and no one would ever doubt that. Well, fast forward several years, we now have several randomized control trials of high-dose antibiotics versus upfront appendectomy. And one of these is the APPACs trial. And this was published long-term follow-up in JAMA. This is what Ed Livingston writes. One of the most important findings from the trial was the absence of any major complication in the antibiotic group attributable to the delaying surgery for patients who eventually needed an operation. The findings from the trial dispel the notion that uncomplicated acute appendicitis is a surgical emergency. Although patients may be concerned about the ultimate need for surgery from a health outcomes perspective, non-surgical treatment in uncomplicated appendicitis before proceeding to surgery is a reasonable option. Given that access to a surgeon is not always available, these results may have implications in many different settings in many different countries. And this is something that came from a BMJ paper a few years before. Appendectomy has been the mainstay of treatment for acute appendicitis since it was first reported by McBurney in 1989. And the general assumption since the 19th century had been that in the absence of the surgical intervention, the disease often progresses from uncomplicated to perforated appendicitis. Okay, and there were even people who said, if you are only removing diseased appendices, you're not doing them enough. You need to actually have to have some rate of removing appendices that don't have appendicitis to know you're hitting the sweet spot. This is the kind of rhetoric that had been used in this space. So why do I want to talk about this study? I want to talk about this study because it shows that 15 years ago, something that people thought could not be and should not be studied in a randomized trial, and of course, was of indisputable benefit has now been studied in several randomized trials with the data strongly suggesting that you probably can manage these patients with medical therapy alone and that only a fraction of them will require appendectomy in the future. This is extremely provocative. The point here is in part 
how do you manage appendicitis, but more about how we develop such unyielding faith that our interventions are miraculous when they are clearly no such thing. And years later, when courageous investigators like these courageous investigators in Finland subject them to rigorous testing, they are found often to be lacking. The problem is the attitude among physicians. The problem is that this took so long to test. The problem is the article by John Worrell that was published many years ago. Back to parachutes. So my resident, Michael Hayes, who's now a practicing internist um, and a really, a really wonderful thinker, um, he, he took a deep look at this parachute problem. We took that BMJ paper that made that claim about parachutes. We followed it over time, and we noted it had been referenced about 840 times in the literature since it was published. I asked Michael Hayes to go through every single one of those references and read them in full which is what he did, because he's a really good resident. I just want people to know that. That's why he did that. Um, I asked him to do that to say, if you look at all the people who cite this article, how many people are willing to name names? How many of them are not just willing to say randomized trials are overrated, evidence-based medicine is bad? How many of them are willing to say this specific medical practice that I participate in should not be, could not be, would not be subjected to a randomized trial because this intervention really does work. It's really a parachute. He looked through this entire list and he found that that was only the case for 35 articles. And interested listeners can read this paper in the Canadian Medical Journal Open. So he looked through and he found 35 claims that this intervention is like a parachute. And then he did a deep dive on every one of those claims. And here's what he found. 18 of the 35 had already been tested in randomized controlled trials. And while six were positive, I think five had mixed results and six were negative. So in other words, the rate of having a positive randomized trial, if someone thought the practice was a parachute, was about the same as the rate of having a positive randomized trial if you randomly selected any randomized trial that had ever been published in the literature. So these aren't faring much better. When they were positive, the absolute risk reduction ranged from something like 10% ARR to about 30%, which again is not 99.999%. Um, the other thing he found was that for 17 things, there hadn't been randomized trials. Um, and the other take-home point was when you talk about parachutes, what is the endpoint that doctors or writers were talking about? In only half the cases was the endpoint a very important endpoint that could be dichotomized, like living or dying, like having a baby or not having a baby, an important dichotomous endpoint. But in many other cases, the endpoint was something squishy, like A1C, or another endpoint was whether or not you lost a tooth. There were several studies that had to do with dental outcomes. And I hate to say... I hope this isn't a form of bias, but I believe it is the case that losing or not losing a tooth is not as important as losing or not losing your life, and thus an intervention could be tested, and there might perhaps be some more teeth lost in one arm, but that would provide information, and that wouldn't be the end of the world. So back to Michael Hayes's point. Um, Michael Hayes found that although people really love this parachute paper and they love to drum up that analogy, just like John Worrell did with his appendicitis example, the real examples of parachutes are few and far between. And the truth is we probably don't have parachutes in medicine. Biomedicine is probably a field where the best of what we do has a modest to marginal effect size. We're not in the parachute business. And that's not, that, that's not a bad thing. 
Of all the thousands of years human beings have practiced medicine, we at last live in an era with modest to marginal effect size interventions. That's a good thing. We finally have methods to tease apart the glut, the deluge of useless medical practices from those that actually confer benefit. And that's the randomized controlled trial. This is a good thing. So instead of optimizing and embracing and unrolling more randomized controlled trials, making them easier to do, cheaper to do, we have a profession that's trying as hard as it can to move away from them to non-randomized evidence, to real-world evidence, to uncontrolled studies, to more historical comparisons, to more parachute medicine, which, you know, is probably not the case. And the only explanation for that is either one, people haven't studied the history of medicine, or two, that the for-profit motive has gotten in the way of medical progress. The for-profit motive has driven everything. Um, and to the point where we are, we knowingly accept interventions that probably are no better than existing interventions. And we could sort that out with a randomized study, but we choose not to. We choose to put our head in the sand and ignore that information. So, Appendicitis, a wonderful editorial by Ed Livingston, who I have to say has written a bunch of editorials on this topic over the last uh, 10 years and has really been ahead of the curve. Uh, a really good thinker. Um, a really good paper, very important paper on does everybody with appendicitis need to have their appendix removed? But the bigger lesson of how something can become sacrosanct and be no such thing. The last study I want to talk about. Evaluating progression-free survival as a surrogate outcome for health-related quality of life in oncology, a systematic review, and quantitative analysis. Okay, listeners should know that I've done quite a bit of my own professional work on surrogate endpoints and their role in regulatory approval. You should know a few facts. One, approximately two-thirds of cancer drugs that come to the U.S. market do so solely on the basis of improvement in progression-free survival or response rate. That's the percent of people who have tumors shrinking beyond some arbitrary threshold, that's response rate, or the time until tumors grow past some arbitrary threshold, arbitrary measurement cutoff size. And in the interview, Bishal and I are gonna talk a lot more about this. Okay, so these are surrogate endpoints. These have to do with the radiographic appearance of tumors. They're not direct measures of how, of how patients feel. They're certainly not direct measures of how long they live. And yet the bulk of FDA approvals are on this basis. And many of the times when the FDA approves something based on conditional or accelerated approval and they convert it later, they celebrate that. They say, look, we followed up. We made sure this actually did what you thought it did. But they're converting it based on a different surrogate endpoint, which I think is totally ludicrous. They're not measuring quality of life or overall survival at that point. Uh, and that's a whole other can of worms that I should have talked about with Bishal because I know he has strong feelings about that. But I, I didn't, and his interview is coming up next. So what are some of the things that, that I've done in this space? Um, we have looked at the correlation between changes in response rate and changes in PFS and overall survival in every single trial level meta-analysis we can in an umbrella study we published in JAMA Internal Medicine in 2015. We found that in the adjuvant setting, there were a couple of instances where it was a good predictor, but mostly it was a very weak predictor, it was a poor predictor. With my colleague Chul Kim, we looked at the FDA approval on the basis of surrogates and we asked when the FDA approved this drug with this surrogate, did they have any data that showed that that was a valid surrogate? And most concerning to us was we found that they were both regular approvals and accelerated approvals using surrogates. The regular approvals are even worse because you know there is no post-marketing efficacy commitment. 
And many of these surrogates that they were using not only had a weak correlation, they had no published correlation. We just didn't know what the correlation was. No one had ever studied it. So the FDA is using these a lot. They may not correlate with OS. Now the second piece of information, um, Chris Booth and colleagues from Kingston, Ontario, they've looked at the fact that this endpoint, PFS, is really taking over oncology. It's, it's the dandelion weed in oncology. It's the endpoint de jour of clinical trials. And if you look at trials over time, you will see a larger fraction of them uses PFS as the primary endpoint. So that's the second piece of information. So outside of the regulatory space, when it comes to the practice of medicine, we're embracing this endpoint more and more. Okay, so there are these two pieces of information. Um, the next piece of information you should know is another paper I did with Chul Kim in JAM Internal Medicine where we looked at if a drug is approved based on a surrogate with 4.5 years of follow-up on the U.S. market, does it later improve overall survival? And the answer is no. That was only true for a tiny fraction of those drugs. And in a follow-up paper um, by Diane Rupp, they found that it didn't improve OS even years on the market. Enter the study by Bruno Kovic and colleagues in JAMA Internal Medicine, October 1st. This study is a large, detailed, systematic review of 52 articles reporting on 38 randomized controlled trials asking the question whether or not changes in PFS lead to or correlate with changes in health-related quality of life. And the answer is they do not. We failed to find a significant association between PFS and health-related quality of life in cancer clinical trials. These findings raise questions regarding the assumptions that interventions that prolong PFS also improve health-related quality of life. Therefore, to ensure that patients are truly obtaining important benefits from cancer therapies, clinical trial investigators should measure health-related quality of life directly and accurately, ensuring adequate duration and follow-up. And this study is complemented by a forthcoming study by Bashal, which he's going to talk about in the interview, um, that shows essentially the same thing and some other sort of interesting findings, which I'll save for the interview. What does all this mean? We are using these endpoints over and over to approve drugs. You have people like the commissioner patting themselves on the back saying, we approved 18 drugs last year, 15 drugs last year. We're approving more drugs than we ever approved. Look how good we're doing. But merely approving drugs is no measure that you're doing a good job. What matters is, are you improving drugs that make people live longer or live better, which are the only two things that matter to patients? And it is clear that many of these drugs, years on the market, they don't show people live longer. They don't show people live better. And the surrogates themselves are poor stand-ins for either of those two things. So what are we doing? We have forgotten what actually matters and replaced it with what actually can be measured. And this is the title of a paper that Booth and Elizabeth Eisenhower wrote many years ago in the JCO. It's still such a provocative paper. It's something, is PFS clinically meaningful or simply measurable? And the answer is, it may simply be measurable. But just because something can be measured, just because you can tell somebody who hasn't really thought about it too much that this should be a stand-in, should be important, doesn't mean it is important. You have to test that with robust scientific studies. What I would say is trial-level meta-analyses with very little lost information, which is something that we've published on extensively. The conclusion is, my overall conclusion is, that the FDA drug approvals in cancer so often is on the basis of a surrogate. So rarely has OS being proven later, post-market. So rarely is on the basis of OS. There are a lot of problems with the studies that do find OS, poor post-protocol therapy, the wrong population, et cetera, et cetera. This is a house of cards. There, 
this is a house of cards. The more you look at this, you'll find more and more inconsistencies. You'll find things that don't make sense. These studies are just the tip of the iceberg. We have a couple more studies that I don't want to talk about too much because they're under review and I'm scared of Inglefinger wherever he may be. And I don't want to talk about it, but I will talk about it when it does come out. And I will tell you that after those few points are advanced, and these points are being advanced with the rigorous examination of data. That's the other thing we have to point out. This isn't just people commenting or speculating. This isn't just opinions. This is the rigorous study of data. If you keep looking at this problem, you're going to find bigger and bigger inconsistencies and problems. We want cancer drugs that improve survival or quality of life as they are used in the real world of Americans or Europeans or global citizens. That's what we want. And you ask yourself, what is the bar we're setting for these drugs? And how well does that predict what we actually want? And you will find this is a house of cards waiting to topple. And on that positive note, we're going to move to the interview with Dr. Bishal Gaywali. I'm here in Plenary Session HQ with Bishal Gaywali. Bishal, how are you? I'm great. I'm feeling fantastic. It's good to have you here. Uh, thank you for having me. Is this your first Plenary Session? Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, in fact, there is a funny story. I think a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. one of my very good friends and world wishes told me, Vishal, the path you are going into will never land you a plenary session in a big conference. <laughs> really? But mm. I, I'm proving them wrong today. <laughs> you are proving them wrong, Vishal, and I'm, I'm glad to help you prove them wrong <laughs> because this is indeed just as good as giving the plenary session, in fact, better because our audience is much bigger and more thoughtful than than most of the audience. No, uh, our audience is much bigger uh, than those of the plenary session. So um, that's a good thing. Now, Bashal, you, I'll give uh, listeners a bit of background about you. You did your medical training in Nepal, uh, where you're a bit of a Nepalese celebrity, in part because you scored the highest in your high school examinations, you scored the highest in your medical school training, and you're well known across the country as a leading oncologist. After your time in Nepal, you spent a few years in Japan, where you did a PhD, as well as focused work in gynecologic oncology. No. Uh, it's oncology in general. Oh, okay. But one of my, uh, my personal focus of interest was gynec. I see. Yeah. And um, after your time in Japan, you moved to the Portal Medical Group, the program on regulation, therapeutics, and law at Harvard Medical School. Run by Dr. Kesselheim. And it's a group of really perhaps the preeminent policy scholars of today. Um, And you have done a number of wonderful projects with them on oncology topics. Yeah, I I feel privileged to be there. And you were the Grand Round Speaker this morning, where you gave uh, an excellent talk, a really truly excellent talk called Common Sense in Oncology. And uh, I really wish listeners could have had a chance to be at this talk because I found it to be so thoughtful, um, so interesting, and really I felt heartfelt. I felt um, this is really the issues that uh, matter most to you in this talk. Yeah, th- thank you very much for saying that. I was wondering if I upset some audience. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think. I think you left them, you left them thinking, uh, thinking deeper about what we do and why we do it. Now, there are a number of themes you brought up in your talk, and I want you to talk to you about them. And I've also gotten some listener feedback over 
over over these last few weeks of this podcast. And some listeners want to know, when you have a guest on with whom you agree a lot, and, and they'll quickly learn that you and I agree on many topics, they want to know where you disagree. So I'm going to talk to them a little bit about where we might disagree. So hopefully <laughs> we, can, we can find that spot too, because they, that might be a little interesting for the, for the readers. Yeah. But first, let's talk about the cancer ground shot. Mm-hmm. Listeners should know that towards the end of the Obama administration, Vice President Joe Biden um, launched something called a cancer moonshot. Um, this was a concerted effort um, to make a serious progress against cancer, which has sadly not had as many breakthroughs and, and, and innovations as patients truly deserve. And I think it was a very noble effort. Um, unfortunately, there have been many critics of the moonshot. Some of us criticize the rhetoric. I think moonshot as a word I would, didn't like a lot. I think it kind of connotes that solving cancer is merely an engineering problem, which we mm-hmm. know is not. It's a, yeah. it's a fundamental biological problem. It's very difficult um, to make serious progress in the mm-hmm. absence of a robust science agenda. Uh, the second thing was I felt like the moonshot kind of co-opted some of the themes that were already happening. Um, you heard a lot of rhetoric like, we just need immunotherapy. Yeah. But of course, immunotherapy, uh, that ship had sailed. It was full steam ahead on immunotherapy long before the moonshot or irrespective of a moonshot. Yeah. We heard yeah. a lot about breaking down silos and data sharing, and those are things that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether or not those will lead to substantive treatments to improve outcomes for cancer patients, I think, is a question. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an open question. But one of the things you noticed about this is that high-income nations are pursuing extravagant cancer therapies, often at great price, um, and even pursuing more and more um, therapies with perhaps diminishing gains or diminishing returns at even higher prices. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, one of the things we've forgotten is that much of this world uh, are people in low and middle income countries who lack access to rather basics and fundamental cancer care. Um, And if we wanted to make globally a sizable impact on on cancer, Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot we can do from something you've called a cancer ground shot. Uh, Yes. uh, uh, Actually, when I came across Monsartan, I saw news that uh, there was actually a lawsuit between two different institutions about who owns the Tom Cancer Monsat. Mm. And I was very surprised because I thought, well, why would that matter? Uh, what we are trying to achieve from Monsat is not who, who that Tom belongs to, but we are trying to improve patient outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I looked into Monsat, and as you said, uh, Monsat had a big focus on immunotherapy, precision medicine, they had a focus on uh, real-world data, big data. And then I looked at, uh, I came across this graph of, it was a world map which showed uh, mortality by cervical cancer. Uh, And the higher the mortality, the redder was the graph. And I saw like half of the world was red. That means there were so many women dying of cervical cancer. And I thought about what can we do for cervical cancer? And it did not need immunotherapy. It did not need precision medicine. It did not need big data, artificial intelligence. What We know that if there is a cancer that we can actually eliminate, it is going to be cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. We have vaccinations. We have effective screening programs. If mm-hmm. we detect early, we can cure it. So. Cervical cancer did not need anything, any of these new technologies, and it still 
it is a cancer that can be eliminated. Mm-hmm. So I felt like we need to focus our efforts to make use of the strategies that we already know work. Mm-hmm. And that can be applied globally. So even now, there are so many countries in the world where we don't have radiotherapy machines, something that can, ki- that can help in curing cancer. We don't have surgical facilities everywhere. And so these are high-value interventions. And we can achieve this at a fraction of the moonshot cost. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you said in your talk was that um, researchers in India have recently published that they've adopted IBM Watson and it's helping in treatment decisions. You talked about how low and middle income countries are talking about how can we get bevacizumab and metastatic cervical cancer. And do you feel that IBM Watson and bevacizumab and metastatic cervical cancer are the best use of limited healthcare dollars in <laughs> low and middle income countries? Yeah. Yes, that, that was like a... Uh, paradox of cancer care in low and middle income countries. We don't have surgical facilities. We don't have radiotherapy facilities. But we are having Watson for oncology. Mm. So do we actually need Watson for oncology for global oncology? I actually published a commentary on that in Lancet Oncology saying, does global oncology need artificial intelligence? And no, it does not need artificial intelligence. It needs natural common sense. Uh, So... Yeah, you, you picked up a, a very nice example of bevacizumab for metastatic cervical cancer. Now, in this 21st century, I feel no women should die of cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. But if we are focusing on improving three months of survival by using bevacizumab for metastatic cervical cancer, and people are talking in countries like Nepal and India, like how to make bevacizumab more affordable for patients with metastatic cervical cancer. And I'm like, that's not the point. The point is, how can we control cervical cancer? How can we uh, have effective vaccinations and screening programs so that no woman has to reach the stage of metastatic cervical cancer so that the debate about affordability of bevacizumab should be a moot point? Mm-hmm. So cancer grounds, are actually, by the word cancer grounds, I mean we need to implement the things that we already know work, and we need to put our resources on, on, on these effective interventions that can be applied globally rather than only 5% of the uh, total cancer population benefiting from uh, these interventions. And I don't mean to propose this as an alternative to Monsat, but as a parallel to Monsat mm-hmm. uh, cancer grounds. So someone has to focus on, on these issues because without having grounds, we cannot improve the global cancer survival rates. Uh, but uh, but cancer moonshot sounds more attractive for everyone. Everyone likes immunotherapies and precision medicine. But if I say we need radiotherapy machines, then it does not sound sexy enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I, as I showed in my slides, uh, the, the, the tragedy is that uh, we had a news in, in BBC which showed that actually dogs in U.S. have better access to radiotherapy machines than people in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And that was a very sad slide. Yeah. And then we we and then we looked at two news articles side by side. One was talking about artificial intelligence, Watson for oncology in India, and the other was talking about uh, no radiotherapy in 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 a whole country in Africa. And I want to, I think that's well said. And I want to explore this just a bit more. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things you said that I really agree with is we're not talking about in lieu of. We're talking about in parallel to. Yes. And here's what I would say about this, I think, and I'm going to go back to you for what we can do globally in a minute. And and the things we can do globally would have tremendous benefit, often at very low cost. They're easy to do. They're things we know will work and would save many, many thousands, perhaps millions of lives globally. 
let's talk a little at bit. A, at a fraction of cost of moonshot. At a fraction of the cost. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about moonshot and why that term kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, because I think we also we also simultaneously need to make progress in uh, in higher income countries mm-hmm. um, towards improving outcomes. And I think if we took that really seriously, it would not look like the moonshot, which I thought was a lot of rhetoric, mm-hmm. trumpeting things that are already going full steam ahead, yeah. um, as well as a lot of rhetoric about how can the FDA further lower the regulatory hurdles to get mm-hmm. to market. Um, that's not, that's, you know, the analogy I used in an article I wrote was thinking the FDA, um, thinking reforming the FDA will lead to better cancer drugs is like thinking you will run a faster mile by buying a new stopwatch. Uh, <laughs> they're not making the drugs, you know? Yeah. So what can we do in the United States, I think, is the following. One, the amount of money we spend on basic science research is a pittance. Mm-hmm. Um, $30 billion a year NIH funding is a pittance compared to what we spend on healthcare, which is a trillion dollars. That ratio must be corrected. Yeah. You have to fund science both when it's making promises that mm-hmm. it's delivering cures, but also blue sky science, mm-hmm. science for biology's sake. You have to fund science in the good times and the bad times consistently year by year. And that's something that politicians constantly shirk their responsibility mm-hmm. for. They don't want to do that. They don't want to take on funding science very broadly. You need to realize the FDA is not the barrier to getting mm-hmm. good drugs. The barrier is the biology. The biology must be understood. Um, I think you can't run a moonshot and just take things that are already in existence and claim credit for those things. That's very disingenuous. Immunotherapy is going to run its course. We can ask ourselves, how can we have an optimized trials agenda? Do we need 1,000 trials of immunotherapy, mostly Mm -hmm. redundant, duplicative? And here I'm talking about, as you'll know, the Lancet Oncology paper that Mm -hmm. really shows the landscape of PD-1 trials is really every company trying to get in on the game. We're not running a rational trials agenda. And here people like Jonathan Kimmelman and others Mm -hmm. have done that kind of work. So we can have the conversation about the U.S., what we can do in the moonshot. Mm -hmm. And you and I, I think we'd agree, we'd Mm -hmm. both support such efforts. Mm -hmm. But what they're doing, I think, you know, is really... Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. And if I have to add one more point, then it would be, when I talk about global oncology, it's not only about low and middle income countries. Mm -hmm. I have come to realize that there is a whole global oncology agenda within the U.S. itself, because there are so many patient populations here who have sometimes poor access to cancer care than people in low and middle income countries. Mm-hmm. So if if someone wants to say we are improving cancer care in U.S., then it's not only about immunotherapy and precision medicine. It's about those underprivileged population, even within the U.S., who are not having access to basic cancer care, who don't have insurance system, uh, who don't have insurances to cover their health care, and who are suffering bankruptcy and other financial toxicities of cancer treatment. So what program is going to take care of that undersobbed global oncology population within the U.S.? Mm. And I think along those lines, I think to myself, how will history judge us if we do not do this? Yes. How will we yeah. be judged mm-hmm. 100 years from now if we do not do this? Mm-hmm. Something that was so relatively affordable, mm-hmm. so relatively obvious, should save so many lives mm-hmm. of so many people, and we have continued not to do this, and that's what really troubles me. Um, when it comes to thinking global, one of the challenges we face is this issue of how do you tailor global solutions to the desires, needs of communities without going and sort of imposing by fiat what you think is valuable? How do you actually um, spark the the change in health outcomes that's really, I think, more in line with, mm-hmm. you know, with what local communities want? How do you do that? 
Yeah, I think uh, it's uh, a matter of understanding that uh, there are differences in in healthcare systems and and people's education status and people's uh, culture between high income countries and low income countries and uh, low income countries i always keep saying they should not try to just copy paste what high income countries are doing mm-hmm. so they should have their own trial agenda their own research agenda what is of importance to them what is of uh, wh- what is high value to them and i think we have a lot of opportunities for what we call co-development in which high income countries and low income countries can work together for a common agenda that can be of value for the entire world uh let's shift gears i want to ask you just a couple of other questions while i have you here i want to ask you about response rate and progression free survival mm-hmm. you've called these surrogate endpoints yes why are these an endpoint what Why are these surrogate endpoints? Because these are not something the patient experiences for himself or herself. But uh, surely you feel better when your tumors shrink? No, th- th- if the patient feels better then you can measure it by mm-hmm. using quality of life as an endpoint. Mm-hmm. So yes, I'm interested in whether the patient feels better or not. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that decreasing the tumor size is making the patient feel better because what we call response is an arbitrary cutoff limit in the tumor size uh, reduction. Mhm. So surrogate endpoints for me are those that the patient does not feel for himself or herself but we tease the patient. So uh, if a patient feels better that is an important endpoint for me. Mm-hmm. If a patient says he or she is living longer, if the, if the patient is living longer then that is an important endpoint for me. But the patient does not know what's happening with a certain tumor size in his lung and I look at CT scans and I say like your tumor is increasing. and the patient will then react to that information mm, right yeah the, and i say that your, your tumor size is decreasing and the patient will start to react to that the patient does not experience that for himself or herself so true endpoints for me are those that the patient will tell me mm-hmm. surrogate endpoints are those that i tell the patient mm-hmm. and i think that listeners don't really understand but if you and i took the same set of cat scans and we mm-hmm. both scored them for response mm-hmm. would we have 100% agreement no no that there is always uh, an error in measurement and there is always bias in measurement i think it will also depend on you know if you trust that the drug that you are giving is a good one mm-hmm. sometimes you underestimate the growth in tumor size mm-hmm. and you think of it like ah it's stable it's not growing that much mm. but if you don't have trust in a certain drug and then you see a certain increase increment you immediately feel like oh this is stopping to work this is not working it so i think there is a lot of bias in in interpreting the size of tumors mm. from listeners you know that this is a bit what we've been talking about bias susceptible versus bias resistant endpoints your knowledge of and faith in an intervention may mm. affect your scoring of the endpoint yes. which is something we see a bit in the cardiology literature and we also see in oncology yeah def- think, yeah go ahead yeah i mean th- therefore especially for surrogate endpoints like mm-hmm. response rate and and progression free survival it doesn't make any sense to me f- to have a non blind trial mm-hmm. because these are subjective endpoints mm-hmm. and if you are not blinding the investigator and you are saying progression free survival has increased it it uh, is v- very difficult to trust Mm-hmm. And let me give a little bit more data along these lines. Uh you know, Tanok has actually taken the same scans and given them to different people in a in a 
paper called The Use and Misuse of Waterfall Plots, and different readers will score different mm-hmm. changes in tumor measurements if they were giving the same scans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have a number of other studies that show that there is measurement error, divergence in estimates um, between different readers scoring different scans. And one of the things I like to say is that people assume that measuring your tumor dimensions is like measuring your height. Mm-hmm. I'm roughly gonna get the same height every time I measure. Mm-hmm. I, I try to counsel them that it's a lot more like measuring the width of a cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can look at the sky and try yeah. to see where one cloud ends, one cloud begins. It's not always so mm-hmm. easy. Yeah. Um, we talk a lot about surrogate endpoints and you have done an empirical analysis. So one of the things I should mm-hmm. say first, um, a couple years ago, um, you know, some people I worked with at National Cancer Institute and I, we took a look at the correlation between response rate and PFS changes in every single tumor type against overall survival. Mm-hmm. And we found that almost as a general rule, in the metastatic setting, there was a poor correlation between between changes in PFS mm-hmm. and subsequent changes in OS. In the adjuvant setting, we found something slightly better, particularly in lung and colon, where DFS mm-hmm. does correlate with OS yes. a little bit better. You have taken a close look mm-hmm. at whether or not changes in PFS predict improvements in quality of life in, mm-hmm. a, in a paper you presented at uh, ASCO last year. This year. This year. Yeah. That's right. Time flies. And, <laughs> and, what did, and what did you find when you when you took a look at does do this predict quality of life? Yeah, that's a very important question. And uh, I read your paper uh, about the, that correlation. Thank between, you so much. Yeah. You're, you're one of the very few. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I saw, I saw that, okay, PFS does not correlate with OS, but maybe PFS is still meaningful if it is a surrogate for quality of life. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, we uh, did that uh, research. Uh, it was a systematic review to see whether PFS is a surrogate for quality of life instead. Mm-hmm. And we came uh, with a couple of surprising findings. One was nearly half of the trials, they don't even include quality of life as an endpoint, which is a big deal for me because these are the drugs used in metastatic setting, uh, which is also called palliative setting. And they're not so, measuring quality of life. Yeah. Because That's the whole whole purpose of using a drug in palliative setting is to improve, improve survi- quality of life. Survival or quality, or quality of life. Of life. Right. Yes. W- yeah. So I think it is unconscionable not to measure. I think, yes. yeah. Okay. And we'll then agree there. Of those trials that did include quality of life as an endpoint, uh, one fourth, they did not report quality of life. Mm. And that's uh, not good either. Yes. Um, so that means the quality of life data was taken was measured because it was one of the endpoints, but it is not being presented. And let me ask you, if it's not reported, is your Mm. guess that it's good, favorable, that's why they're not reporting? (laughs) What's your guess? Let's be honest. Yeah, of course. I mean, if you are not, uh, if you are trying to hide something, it has to be bad. Yeah, and I think yeah. because one has to th- realize the person holding on to this data mm-hmm. is often a corporate sponsor with tremendous interest in putting that data out if it were favorable, yeah. and yet it's not coming out. Yeah, and there would be, and that paper would be opportunity for authorship for so many people, mm-hmm. uh, opportunity to get into a good journal. Mm-hmm. So, and and even then, these data are not being presented means it must be real awful. I mean, that's what I would guess, but yeah. we don't know that for sure. And then the yeah. last thing you found in the paper. And okay. the last thing yeah. we looked at for those trials for which we had data data on PFS yeah. and quality of life, we saw that actually PFS does not have a good correlation with quality of life either. Mm-hmm. So our conclusion was, you showed that PFS is not a good surrogate for survival. We showed that PFS is not a good surrogate for quality of life. So 
why are we measuring PFS then? Right, and I think Chris Booth and colleagues once wrote in the JCO, is it clinically meaningful or, or simply, simply measurable? measurable? Exactly, yeah. simply measurable. Is it simply measurable? Yeah, I think it's simply measurable. Simply measurable, and something that, well, I don't want to say too much about it, but I think there's a number of other reasons why it serves as regulatory endpoint. One of the off-sided reasons is speed. I'm not sure that's the real reason. I think there's some other reasons why it might serve so often as regulatory endpoint. But I wanted to ask you about something else. In one of your two slides in your talk, Mm -hmm. so provocative, so provocative, (laughs) the NCCN uh-huh. How it treats nesetumumab in non-small cell lung cancer, uh-huh. squamous histology, yeah, and how it treats in that very same non-small cell lung cancer, ramucirumab. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a big surprise to me. Yeah, uh, tell us tell us what they do and why. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I mean, I was very happy uh, that uh, NCCN considered cost, toxicity, and efficacy in its judgment and said we are going to delete Nesitumav from our recommendation. It and was it was like an unprecedented thing coming from NCCN. I was very happy, like uh, they are considering all benefits and harms, including financial harms. And then they mention Nesitumav improves survival only slightly. I think that's the language. Let me read it to, yeah. the, to the listeners since I have it on. I, you can't see the screen, sadly, or you, you have you read it. The NCCN panel recently voted unanimously to delete nesetumumab, cisplatin, gemcitabine from the NCCN guidelines for patients with metastatic squamous cell and non-small cell lung cancer. This decision reflects the fact the NCCN panel feels the addition of nesetumumab to the regimen is not beneficial based on toxicity, cost, and limited improvement in efficacy when compared to cisgem. A phase three randomized trial only showed a slight improvement in yeah, OS. only showed a slight improvement. And the difference was 1.6 months, I think, the difference between the two arms. And the hazard ratio, 0.84. Yeah, and they mentioned only 0.84. And now let's talk about ramucirumab and then, when combined to dose yeah, of Axel. And then I, I go to ramucirumab section, mm-hmm. and the difference in survival is actually 1.4 months. 10.5 versus 9.1. Yeah. With nestumab, it was 1.6. Mm-hmm. This is 1.4 months. Mm-hmm. And hazard ratio is 0.86. It's a little worse. Yeah, and the, and the adjective only is gone. It's no longer only. Yeah. It's slightly increased. Yeah. So Not only, only slightly. Yeah, only is gone. Only is gone. So 0. 0.84 was only. Mm-hmm. 0.86 hazard ratio is not only. No, it's 0.86. And 0. 0.84, 1.6 month survival improvement gets deleted. Mm-hmm. And 0. 0.86 hazard ratio, 1.4 month survival improvement gets added. Added. Added with a category 2A recommendation. So what you're saying is two recommendations, same cancer type broadly, similar improvements in OS. One is in only 1.6 months. This is a 1.4 months. One gets deleted, one gets added, both highly costly agents. Exactly, highly costly and highly toxic. Okay, And, and, and your point is they're inconsistent. Yeah, it's like, we wrote a paper called Same Data, Different Interpretations in mm-hmm. JCO in, yeah. in 2016. Yeah. And this is another a recent important example for same data, different interpretations. Why are they inconsistent? What do you think is the reason? Um, honestly, I, I, I don't know. I was very, very surprised to see this. And uh, Let me put it to you this way. I guess I would say the ramucirumab example mm-hmm. is in line with everything else they do. Yeah. 
that's actually consistent with the NCCN. Yes. The Nesitumumab example is inconsistent. Yeah, yeah. And that's an example that, frankly, got a lot of negative press, in part because mm-hmm. of Dr. Daniel Goldstein from Israel, who uh-huh. published prior to the, prior to the drug <laughs> approval, he uh-huh. published what it should cost if it wanted to be value-based yeah, price. Yeah. And, of course, Lilly did not follow his value-based pricing. Mm-hmm. The other thing, I mean, I just thought, I mean, I... I thought the way you you know the way you found these two examples and show them side by side is just incredibly compelling, and you know um, about a year ago we published that broad look at the NCCN that mm-hmm. I had Jeff Wagner on this podcast take us through, uh-huh. essentially showing that the NCCN always and inexorably recommended an FDA drug for an FDA approved indication, but it also added a whole bunch of other things, often based on yes, low that was of data. That, that was my other uh, surprising point mm-hmm. uh, because the NCCN includes so many off-label <coughs> mm-hmm. uh, recommendations. Right. So FDA-approved drugs, even for off-label uses, NCCN keeps recommending. And now this is a drug, Nestumab, which is actually approved by the FDA. Right. And the NCCN deletes it. Right, right. Yeah. Unprecedented. Was, yeah. The other example you and I often talk about is the way we treat bevacizumab in breast cancer differently than Everolimus mm-hmm. palbociclib. Yeah. Palbociclib now, Paloma study, has had many-year follow-up, and mm-hmm. they have continually failed to show an improvement in overall survival. Yes. The addition of palbociclib to anti-hormonal therapy adds toxicity. Mm-hmm. It also improves PFS. Yes. Although the initial PFS improvements in the original phase studies was less and less in subsequent phase studies. Yeah, it has shrunk. It has shrunk. There's some yeah. erosion of PFS benefit. Yeah. So you talk about two drugs, both breast cancer, mm-hmm. both costly, mm-hmm. both toxic, both fail to improve OS, both improve PFS. Yeah. One has been pulled off the market, the other is allowed to sustain on the market. Yeah. Same data. Different interpretations. Different interpretations. Why? Why does this happen? Uh, Again, to to cite what you said earlier in in case of Nesitumab, I would say revoking of Bevacizumab was an outlier. Hmm. So that is, again, an unprecedented thing that happened uh, in oncology by the FDA, uh, the decision to revoke the approval. Uh, but mm, palbocyclib and Everolimus getting full approval, I think that's that's in line with what's norm today. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it was because they um, they received tremendous heat for that Avastin decision. Yeah, so so that could be one reason that the FDA did not want to relieve those experiences of withdrawing another approval. There was a provocative article, I believe, it was in the Wall Street Journal um, about a year ago about the lobbyist who committed suicide. Um, and one of the things I mentioned in the article was this lobbyist claimed credit for delaying the FDA's revoking of Avastin, earning oh, yeah, Genentech yeah. a billion dollars in profit. Yeah, yeah, I, I do remember reading that. And Let me ask you another question. You pointed out to a BBC News article entitled, Remarkable Therapy Beats Terminal Breast Cancer. <laughs> yes. Can you tell us, this is a remarkable therapy that beats terminal breast cancer, and it was a link to a published paper in Nature Medicine. You pulled that published paper. You noticed it had an altmetric score of 1945. You asked me if I'd ever had a paper with an altmetric score <laughs> that high, and I sadly had to admit, not close. No, <laughs> I, I fell short of it. So this paper got a lot of publicity. A remarkable therapy beats terminal breast cancer. Yes, the title had everything um, it had to to make it as provocative as possible. And that's how hype comes in oncology. And I was presenting this as an example of how media hypes things. 
So it says remarkable therapy. So we have the word remarkable there. Mm-hmm. And then it says beats cancer. It beats it. And then it's a terminal cancer. Oh, that's right. It beats a terminal cancer, yeah. right? And so it had an uh, so it was all over the news. It was all over Twitter. It had an arithmetic of more than 1900, picked up by 120 news pieces. So this must be s- some really good drug. Some v- excellent drug that every patient should demand for. And then I, I I saw like on which article basis was this news made and then I went to the article it was a nature medicine later and then I went on to and I continued reading the study and the study said it is the story of one patient a patient one person it's not even patients it's not even two patients it's one patient so and I don't even know like out of how many patients mm-hmm. Oh, I actually looked into that. Uh-huh. So, you know, when that came out, we looked at um, Kevin Lomaggio from uh, Health News Review. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, he pulled up the, the some of the, um, the reproducibility statements of that paper, and it was very uh-huh. vague, but we found it was linked to some protocol. It must have enrolled consecutive patients. I uh-huh. mean, there were different numbers for the n- amount, but somebody uh-huh. said something like 40-something, 120-something, mm-hmm. but there was some denominator of okay. which this was the best mm-hmm. case. But you're right, that was very difficult to find, and, I'm, and, I, and I don't think that was discussed, that this was one of some denominator yes and this is basically a case report mm-hmm. a, a, a report of a selected case of the best case and this one case report is being presented in media as a remarkable therapy beating terminal cancer and patients will be misled patients will be misinformed and this will lead to real harms and that's why i'm concerned why d- why does the denominator matter some people say it doesn't matter what the denominator is if you're in the numerator you do well No, it, 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 it matters because you have to keep things into perspective. Uh, so if you are a patient, you want to know like what is your chance of of uh, benefiting from this therapy and, w- and, and whether that person who benefited from the therapy in this particular example, was it a matter of chance? Was that patient going to do better anyway, mm-hmm. uh, irrespective of therapy? Like uh, it could be the least slowly growing tumor that would have like we say over diagnosis in in uh, in terms mm-hmm. of screening so uh, we don't know whether it was indolent tumor very malignant tumor and uh, whether it's going to work in your case so you need to know the denominator to know your chances of success from the therapy so if it's uh, uh, th- there are so many negative trials that we say negative because it did not improve survival mm-hmm. but even in those trials you always see one or two patients who do really good But mm-hmm. that does not mean that the overall trial is successful. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to know if that was uh, causally related to having received the study drug or you just happened to find the one person who was destined yes, to exactly. do well. Yes, right? exactly. Let me ask you about the Moscato 1 trial then. We're talking about denominators. Mm-hmm. Do you know Moscato 1 off the top of your head? Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. The CCR study. This is NGS. Yeah, because, because I quoted that in my, in my precision medicine uh, debate commentary in JNCCN. I see. And I think it's an important study yes. because it's one of these few studies that's prospectively run. There's about a thousand people who came in and they, with relapse refractory different malignancies, they wanted to have broad NGS panel sequencing. Mm-hmm. Of the people who wanted to have it done, some fraction had it done. There were mm-hmm. some people in whom it was not able to be performed. Yeah. Of the fraction that had it done, some fraction of, I believe about 200 in a thousand um, was able to be paired with a targeted therapy. Mm-hmm. And of that, um, something like, um, 2% of the initial 
Mm-hmm. 20 people had a response, something like that, of the initial 1,000. About mm-hmm. 2.1% yeah, had a response. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was less than 3%. Less than 3% yeah. had a response. Yes. Now, some people don't like you and I using the denominator of that study mm-hmm. as the people who enrolled in that study. Mm-hmm. Why is that the denominator of the study? Of course, because if you want to see whether this strategy is going to work or not, mm-hmm. then you need to see uh, of all patients in real world, in your clinic, of all patients that come to you, how many of them are going to benefit? So if you are picking only those patients uh, who benefited, or if you are picking only those patients who were able to successfully undergo the biopsy and were able and, and mutations were able to be detected in them, then you are, you are necessarily biasing the results towards success. Mm-hmm. You, are, you are basically saying, look, I picked these 20 patients who had a mutation, and then we give them drug and they benefited. But out of how many patients were, were you able to find those 20 patients who had a mutation? So I think denominator matters a lot. And if a patient's in my office and they have relapse refractory solid tumor mm-hmm. and they say, is it a good idea for me to send my tumor to this, this commercial and exploration mm-hmm. sequencing company? What are my odds? Yes. What would you counsel them? So, uh, therefore, we need the real denominator. Mm-hmm. We, we need the intention to Intention to sequence, sequence. Mm-hmm. intention to sequence denominator. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, as uh, just put in his uh, commentary, intention to eat analysis for nutritional uh, studies. So mm-hmm. I think we need intention to sequence analysis for this type of studies. I think so too. This is a tough issue, this next generation sequencing issue. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you and I know is that a 2.1% response rate mm-hmm. is not good. Yeah, you could have that response rate very well with failed drugs in trials, with Mm -hmm. chemotherapies. Let me ask you another topic that I brought up on this show. You know that letter in the New England Journal of Medicine about response rate in phase (laughs) one studies? Yes. And you know my criticism of it. Yeah, I do. And my criticism of it is that they looked for published studies of phase one trials and they say, lo and behold, the response this rate is, is 20%. This is another example of uh, selecting inappropriate denominator yeah. to bias results to our success. Do you think the people involved in this transaction are aware of what they're doing? I think a lot of these studies, I might be wrong, but mm-hmm. I think that these studies begin with conclusion in mind. Mm-hmm. So these studies begin with conclusion, and then they go on to select the methods that support the conclusion. And I think that's right. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, Yes, sadly. And I think that these are people in whom they like the narrative that mm-hmm. these new drugs are better, and they went out and they surely found a way to show that that was true. Yes. But that was in a, I believe, highly misleading way. What bothered me the most was in the very same journal, not that many years <laughs> before, um, you know, there was an article that was mm-hmm. done the right way, and it was was much more sobering. Let me ask you about non inferiority trials in oncology. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that many of the drugs approved over the last fifteen years have offered less than desired benefits for patients. Um, we wish we had better drugs. Yes. And this is not to say there aren't some drugs that are great. There really mm-hmm. are some transformational drugs, but mm-hmm. when you look at the average drug, they're often Marginal, mm-hmm. And I think data to suggest that would be the paper by Foho and colleagues in JAMA Otolaryngology, yeah. 71 consecutive drug approvals for solid tumor. The median improvement in overall survival was 2.1 months. Yes. Even mm-hmm. the paper by Salas Vega in JAMA Oncology that gets quoted mm-hmm. often 
um, which also included included modeled estimates of survival gains, not measured estimates, but modeled estimates. That showed something like 3.5 months. So even mm-hmm. if you took that estimate, it's still not good enough for what our patients deserve. Yeah. So you talk about a background of 15 years of the average drug offering modest to marginal benefits, mm-hmm. um, and now you move forward in the age of non-inferiority, where we're we're getting newer drugs mm-hmm. that often are equally or more toxic, mm-hmm. certainly more costly. Mm-hmm. And we're saying, is this non-inferior to a drug that wasn't that great to begin with? Exactly. Uh, I mean, non-inferior trials do have a place in oncology. Um, if they have s- something else to compensate for that compromise in, in efficacy. Uh, for example, zoledronic acid, instead of every month, is it okay to give give it every three months? Mm-hmm. That's a very nice non-inferiority design. Because it's le- more convenient and mm-hmm. it's cheaper. Yes. And it's arguably less toxic. Exactly. Mm. IDEA study was designed very appropriately as a non-inferiority trial. Which is IDEA? Uh, IDEA study is the adjuvant, uh, Save. Uh, yeah. adjuvant uh, chemotherapy after uh, resection of stage three colon cancer. I see, three versus six cycles. Yes. Yes. And that is also, go ahead. Yeah, that is a very appropriate non-inferiority study. Mm -hmm. So because if if we're giving six cycles of Alfox, then the patient will have neuropathy and a lot of other complications. So giving uh, only three months of chemotherapy, if it's non-inferior than giving six months of chemotherapy, then that's uh, a a big problem. ease and comfort and less toxicities for the patient. So it's very, very beneficial for the patient. So whenever we are thinking of doing a non-inferiority study, we need to think about what benefit the patient will have for compromising a certain amount of efficacy. efficacy. Mm-hmm. But And when you have drugs that only offer a few months survival benefit in mm-hmm. ideal clinical populations, which in the real world, that's likely possibly even less, yes. and you start to compromise on efficacy, what is there left to compromise to? Yes, exactly. There's not much left. Yes. So I was giving this example of lembatinib mm. in hepatocellular can, uh, cancer, which well, was very recently approved by the FDA. Mm-hmm. And on we the talked basis about on the, one of these episodes we talked about a little bit. Uh, yes, yeah. on mm-hmm. the basis of a non-inferiority trial. Mm-hmm. So as I said, sorafenib, and the control arm, sorafenib, which until now is the standard of care in first-line hepatocellular cancer, is not that great to begin with. Uh, that uh, I think one uh, there was one real-world data which showed that uh, sorafenib efficacy in real world was much less than what it had shown in uh, the trial. Right. Uh, and and s- somebody gave put, gave me a little pushback about that online. Mm-hmm. They said that well, you know, you should be looking at the hazard ratio. You're looking at the absolute benefits. The hazard ratio is like 0. 0.7 or something. So that's not bad. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, that's a small con. That's a mm-hmm. that's a small solace to a patient who's dealing with this cancer and has a very, I think. Mm-hmm. a difficult prognosis to say you should focus on the hazard ratio not the absolute <laughs> benefit that's ridiculous to tell somebody uh, it's uh, it's very difficult to to tell a patient what a hazard ratio is mm-hmm. um, i have i have never been able to teach what a hazard ratio is correctly to a patient and the patient don't seem to understand hazard ratio very well have I'm, you and i've i've been unable to teach it and i'm not mm. so sure most doctors understand what a hazard ratio <laughs> is i think they like to bandy it about they like mm-hmm. to talk about it they use it to make comparisons to 
complete a narrative that they've already constructed in their head, therefore they can use a hazard ratio to bolster said narrative, but I don't think they really know what it means. When you're talking about a condition where the median survival is very, very poor in the mm. real world, as metastatic HCC is, yes. and much worse than the clinical trial population, mm -hmm. which has had a number of selection biases inserted into the picking yeah. of the population, mm. and you're talking about a drug with a marginal benefit in the ideal setting, mm -hmm. you take it to the real world, there's not much benefit, and there's real toxicity and real cost. I don't think we should pat ourselves on the back for that. I yes, think and you Using that mm -hmm. as a control arm, right? You are doing a trial of a new drug and proving that this new drug is non-inferior to this control drug, which is not very good to begin with. That's ludicrous. And on top of that, this new drug is also toxic. Mm -hmm. The new drug costs more than the old drug. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, what do the patients have? In in uh, in exchange of that compromise in efficacy, what what is the gain for the patient? Yes. Yeah. So why would they accept a non? As I told in my um, presentation today morning, I think it becomes a lot easier if we put things into plain language, mm -hmm. so that's something that the patients can easily understand. So I try to put this concept of approving lembatinib uh, as a non-inferior trial into plain language. Mm -hmm. And uh, I imagined a situation in which I'm prescribing this drug to a patient in front of me. Mm -hmm. So if I'm very honest, what should I tell the patient? I should tell the patient that, look, we have approved a new drug mm -hmm. called lembatinib in hepatocellular cancer. We don't have any evidence to show that this drug makes you live longer than sorafenib. Mm -hmm. But we know that this drug makes you live not shorter than sorafenib. Not sure. This drug is toxic, and mm -hmm. it will cost you nearly double of sorafenib. Would you like to take it? <laughs> you know, I think when you put it that way, it seems really um, crazy that one would even have done this study. But I'll tell you, you know, I think the reality of it is once you have the drug approval for non-inferiority, mm -hmm. um, you can have an army of drug representatives go to doctor's office and mm -hmm. talk about some some secondary AE that is better with your drug than serafinib, and you can drive the market share to whatever you want it to be. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, that's the problem. And, uh, you know, I, I, I presented a trial in which uh, uh, I, I presented a trial of a new drug, of, mm -hmm. of a new intervention for low-risk prostate cancer, right. in which the patients in the control arm did not even develop metastasis. There's no development of metastasis. Yeah. It's low risk, early stage, localized prostate cancer. Yeah, and this was a, and this was a drug called padaliporfin. Mm -hmm. uh, laser activated. Yeah, laser activated drug, which was published in Lancet Oncology in 2016, I think. But, but it had made very big news. It had an alphabetic of 1400 or something. 1400. But when you activate something with a laser, it's got to be better, Bishal. Yeah, and it was, it was discovered from under the ocean. Oh, it's from the bottom of the sea. <laughs> That's where the compound comes yeah. from. Yeah. Well, that's better. And, and it is activated by laser. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so it Sounds good. Uh, yeah, I saw the results and it was no patients in the control arm, active surveillance arm, no patients developed even metastasis, no patients are dying of prostate cancer. So the numbers are zero. And the news says it's a game changer. It's a remarkable drug for prostate cancer. And I kept thinking, how can you improve on a mortality rate of zero. What's lower than zero? Yes. Zero. <laughs> before we I, I, before we run out of time, 
I know you have some things to do. But before we run out of time, here's what I want to talk about. Um, because listeners always ask me, you know, you bring on guests, oftentimes you always agree with everything each other says. It's boring, okay. Well, there's one thing that you and I disagree with a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe let's flesh it out a bit. Because I don't think we've ever actually really talked about it in person. So yeah, we, ha- we haven't. We, we have never met so often in person. We've met once before in person. Yeah. Although we've published how many papers together over the years? Mm, I don't remember, but it should be like six, seven. Or yeah, six yeah. or seven, something like that. We published a bunch of papers. And I think... Um, I find it interesting that you know y- you and I are, are friends and um, contemporaries and colleagues, and I think I f- what I find very interesting is um, we have different um, backgrounds, went mm-hmm. to medical school in different places, uh, trained in different hospitals, um, came to oncology for probably different reasons mm-hmm. and different paths, um, and yet we both look at the data and we've read a lot of the same papers mm-hmm. and um, we see some of the same problems. Yeah, and it feels like common sense to me. It feels like very obvious to me. It feels like everybody should be seeing this. You know, I presented a, a photo of a door which had a which had a sign that said pull. Mm-hmm. If that does not work, push. Mm-hmm. If that does not work either, probably we are closed. <laughs> right. So, I mean... No door should have that sign, right? It's right. common sense. Common Everybody sense. Should, should know that either you should pull or you should push. If both of them didn't work, the door is closed. And like you, I'll actually say um, I feel the exact same way, that this mm-hmm. is common sense to me. This is how you should interpret studies. And I'll tell you something even more that I don't mm-hmm. think I've told many people. Um, if everyone were looking at things in this common sense way, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have been in academic medicine. I, I don't know if that was the path I was interested in. I mm-hmm. would have probably saw patients, which is what I enjoy doing the most. Yeah, but yeah. it's because I feel frustrated at times. That's something that's so obvious to me. That's such common sense. People don't really see this. Yeah, I get, I get, I get two emotions. Sometimes I feel very sad that yeah. such type of thing needs saying. Right, right. Why don't people get it? And right. sometimes I feel very surprised that I say something that's very obvious and everyone feels like I said something great because that's a very obvious thing. Right, I feel the same way. But let's talk about the thing we disagree with. Here's mm-hmm. what it is. Um, and I'll give listeners a little background. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of low-cost interventions that retrospective observational study suggests may confer some benefit. Mm-hmm. Among these things, for patients with metastatic solid tumors, yes. among these things are like metformin, perhaps vitamin D mm-hmm. in certain settings like lymphoma, statins, maybe aspirin, mm-hmm. different different drugs that may be used more commonly. Uh, and for that reason, through some large retrospective data set, show some survival advantage in some retrospective data set. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I look at a lot of that data and, and I'm sure you look at it, and we see that there's some flaws to this data. There's guarantee time that's not being controlled for. There's unmeasured or residual confounding. There's inadequate um, uh, methods to handle the confounding. There's the healthy user bias. The reason people are taking mm-hmm. these drugs is they tend to be better on average. Um, the other thing I look at with these drugs is I strongly doubt, and in some cases I actually mm-hmm. know, they altogether lack single agent activity. Mm-hmm. And that's a topic that you and I looked at a few years ago. Yes. I think we pulled every single drug mm-hmm. that was ever approved in the absence of single, in the absence mm-hmm. of single agent activity, mm-hmm. which we defined as like less than 10% or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we found that on average, they were even more marginal than the marginal average drug, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with a median benefit of something like one month or something. Mm-hmm. In combination, and our argument was that if you really have to say I'm studying my drug in combination because it's not going to work as a single agent, mm-hmm. maybe a more acceptable conclusion is to say I shouldn't be really throwing millions of dollars and lots of patient resources into this drug. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so it's got some of these drugs have no single agent activity. They have these retrospective studies that are I think plagued with biases. The mm-hmm. question is, but they're very cheap. 
They're easy to get. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the question of drug repurposing. Yes. Should we be running randomized control trials of these products to mm -hmm. see do they have a benefit or not? Um, you're a proponent of it. I'm a mm -hmm. little bit of the mindset of, you know, mm -hmm. it's probably not gonna work, but mm -hmm. let's hear it. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I feel like instead of having 50 observational studies right. of statins. One and, randomized trial will settle the question. Yeah. Okay, I exactly. Agree. Yeah. So I think, uh, as you said, these drugs are very cheap drugs, metformin, right. statins, aspirin. So if I find that pembrolizumab is effective in gallbladder cancer, out of the total gallbladder cancer population of the world, maybe 2% will benefit. Because that's the only people who can get access to the drug. Yes, mm -hmm. but if I find that uh, alvendazole, an anti-helminthic drug, right. was successfully repurposed, could be successfully repurposed for gallbladder cancer and it worked well for gallbladder cancer, then nearly 98, 99% of the global gallbladder population can benefit from that information. And that's why I think it is imperative to do randomized controlled trials of, of these repurposable drugs which have some preliminary evidence of anti-cancer efficacy in order to settle this question uh, because only mm -hmm. only our cities can settle this question. So instead of having decades and decades of debate that maybe metformin works in, cancer, uh, in pancreatic cancer, maybe it does not. This uh, observational study said it does. This observational study said it did not. So instead of having that debate, I think we need to settle that question with a very nice randomized control trial so I once hear, and for yeah, all. Right. So here you and I will agree on one thing, which is I don't think, mm -hmm. you know, I talk about IVC filters mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have what, you know, dozens and dozens of retrospective studies. We mm -hmm. don't need another retrospective study yes. of the IBC filter. Mm -hmm. Do a randomized, con for Christ's sakes, do it. <laughs> You've had it on the market for so many years, just do it. Yes. Do it or stop talking about it. Um, and, and the, and the other, other thing uh, about uh, conducting randomized controlled trial of, yeah. of these drugs is, I agree that it could be a little bit difficult for accrual in, in high-income countries right. uh, where patients would rather be randomized to a trial of pembrolizumab right. rather than... Because it's a more exciting drug. Yes. Uh, but I think this is also an opportunity for co-development, working together between high-income countries and low- and middle-income countries. And uh, we could make use of uh, uh, that uh, common agenda to uh, to determine the anti-cancer efficacy of a cheap repurposable drug. So here, and the only thing I'll push you back on is why mm. shouldn't we just do a phase two and establish a response rate before we move forward with a phase three? Because once we know there's no response <laughs> rate, is you know that's, that's the thing I uh -huh. come to because I don't think statin will have a response rate, aspirin won't have a response rate. Then why move forward with a phase three? I would say in lieu mm. of that, we should take a cheap, perhaps older cytotoxic drug and try to repurpose that. Uh, I guess maybe the reason that we feel a little differently mm. about this is because I'm just so pessimistic about these retrospective observational studies, and that's really where I start from. You know that they yeah, just yeah, and uh, I think my my emotion comes more from seeing patients who are not being able to afford even good drugs. Yeah, uh, you know, trastuzumab, such a good drug, such a good drug. Uh, but uh, as as uh, we keep saying from yeah. that uh, yeah. paper from India, Tantas paper, yeah. yeah, one in a hundred got it. Yeah, yeah, and that's just a shame. Yes, yeah. So I think uh, we we agree about I guess most things mm -hmm. maybe that we agree that. If you're going to do 50 observational studies to do yes. a randomized trial, it's a good opportunity to, to work together. Yeah. If there is a, one of these drugs that succeeds, it will be mm -hmm. a great thing. It'll have a real, um, real world uptake. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I, it breaks my heart as well when you see things like trastuzumab have really no uptake in, in a nation like India, not just a nation like India. Mm -hmm. This is from a study that was published by the Tata Medical Group, which is yes. a premier medical center in India. And if in that center, HER2 positive tumors, only one in a hundred of women were mm -hmm. getting HER2 directed therapy, it really makes you um, wonder what things must be like across the nation. And Exactly. And to see patients, 99% uh, of patients not get trastuzumab, but see artificial intelligence uh, saying what treatment the patient should do uh, should receive that seems like a big paradox the artificial intelligence uh, is saying this patient should get trastuzumab and there is no trastuzumab yeah i think um ibm watson doesn't appear to confer value in any nation mm -hmm. and it certainly shouldn't be prioritized over things that have proven value uh it's ludicrous i think it's it's frustrating to see yes um it's common sense, as you would put it. Yeah, well, I, as uh, I keep saying, oncology needs these big, uh, new high-tech things. But more than that, oncology today needs common sense. Let me talk about another topic that's important to us. Um, Clinical trials are expensive, they're arduous, they're not easy, there's perhaps more bureaucracy involved than we need, but mm -hmm. perhaps some of that is necessary. So there's, you know, there's a gray line there. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that you and I will agree is that the absolute most precious thing used in clinical trials are the patients who participate in clinical trials. Exactly. And we ought to offer clinical trials that are absolutely the best trials that we can be offering. The portfolio of trials has to be the best we can be doing. Yes. Anything less is a disservice. And we complain a great deal about how accrual is difficult and only 3% of patients in this country go on study. Mm -hmm. And as long as these things are true, the least we can do is offer the perhaps optimized clinical trials portfolio. Exactly. One of the things you've looked at are the fact that Yes, we have negative phase three trials in oncology. Mm -hmm. That's not always a bad thing. You can learn a lot from a negative trial. That's not always a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But the bad thing is if you launched a phase three trial that took a lot of resources and a lot of patients, and you really shouldn't have launched that in the first place. And yes. that's what you studied. Yeah, I mean, negative phase three trials, they have a they have a big educational role. They teach us a lot of things. So I'm not a critic of negative phase three trials as such because that's how science moves. If we knew that it was going to be negative from the outset, we did not have to do an RCT. But my problem, my objection is, if we are running an RCT that had a high chance of being negative from the from the outset, if we knew that there was a very low chance of success and still we went on to do that RCT, then that's a huge disservice to patients. Because, as you said, we are, we are always complaining accrual is slow and we don't have enough trial participants for every trial. Mm -hmm. But we are engaging hundreds and thousands of patients. And we are enrolling them in trials which did not have very good chance of success to begin with. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge disservice in terms of trial recruitment, but also in terms of patients' expectations, because these are phase three trials in which patients get enrolled with expectations of benefit. Mm -hmm. So what happened when you studied this set of what it looks like um, uh, we, 16 phase three negative trials? Yeah, we, we looked at all the negative phase three trials published in 2016. Mm -hmm. And uh, and this we, is you and Alfredo. Yes. Who's a uh, wonderful person. Yeah, uh, he's my good friend, uh, a lung cancer expert. He's now in Switzerland. I see. Um, and we saw that of those of of these negative trials, we wanted to our objective was we wanted to see whether these phase three trials were justified or not. And by that we mean whether they had a positive phase two data that supported phase three. Right. 
So of these 16 trials, we found that eight of them, 50% of them were done without a positive phase two. Mm. So half of the negative phase three trials were, were negative because they were done without a positive phase two. Mm -hmm. And the remaining half were not because of a positive phase two. The out of the remaining half, I think three of them were just uh, a, a, a drug in a later line mm -hmm. was being trialed in earlier line, right. or a drug in a metastatic setting was being trialed in adjuvant setting. I see. Uh, so a huge proportion of these negative phase three RCTs were negative because we did not have a positive phase two to begin with. And of those, uh, five of them, of, of those eight, five of them actually, uh, Sorry, of those eight, three of them actually had negative phase two data. Right, and five were inconclusive. Yeah, and five were inconclusive. Right. So a phase two trial says this drug is ineffective and still we go on to do a phase three RCT. Now, what does that mean? And I'm also confused. How could we take an informed consent or how did IRB approve such, such trials? Because you have to say during informed consent process that, you see, this is a new drug. This has undergone phase two. So now we are trialing this in phase three. In phase two, it did not work. <laughs> I'll tell you why it happens. And you know, this is the paper that we wrote in Nature Reviews, Clinical Oncology. Mm -hmm. um, if you use a one-tail p-value, one out of 20 trials will be positive by chance alone. If you use a two-tail, be one mm -hmm. in 40. The FDA has accepted p-values as permissive as one in 10, uh, mm -hmm. the olartumumab, uh, the mm -hmm. olartumumab study yeah. in uh, sarcoma. Mm -hmm. Um, it costs money to run a randomized control trial. It can cost millions of dollars. But when you talk about, I guess the point I want to make mm -hmm. is, even though it costs a lot of money to run these trials, if you run many, many, many of these trials, mm -hmm. by chance alone, some will be positive. Mm -hmm. And it is possible that the current regulatory system has gotten so lax, mm -hmm. perhaps so broken, that you can even turn a profit by running perhaps even completely inert compounds. Mm -hmm. So when you take compounds with even very low probability of improving mm -hmm. outcomes, it may even be financially viable to mm -hmm. test these in phase three trials, which mm -hmm. is how bad the regulatory system may be. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was the only only justification that I could think of. Right. Why would anyone want to run up phase three, a huge phase three spending so much of money right. for a drug that did not even pass phase two. Right, unless, of course, there's gotta be some way you're making a net benefit out of this. Yes, and if by chance the drug proves to have, even if it's clinically meaningless, if it has statistically significant outcomes in phase three, even if by chance, yeah. then it can recoup all, all of the money yes. and then some. It can yes. recoup for all the losses. Yeah. And the classic example is, let's talk about uh, adjuvant sutent. You've mm -hmm. got two trials, one is negative, both are negative for OS, one has a DFS benefit, the pooled analysis has no DFS benefit, mm -hmm. and it gets approval. And it increases toxicity. And it increases toxicity, so, right, yeah. I again wanted to put that in, in, in plain language. Yeah. So we have a drug that does not improve DFS when you look at the pool analysis. Does not improve DFS, does not improve OS, increases toxicities, reduces quality of life. Right. What do you do to the drug? You approve it. But they were familiar with the OS data, that's true. Yes, uh, and in fact, it was so presented as no detrimental effects on overall survival. No and detrimental effects. I, I really could not wrap my head around it, and I tried to put it into plain terms, and again, I thought of uh, a patient in front of me, and I'm trying to prescribe that drug to the patient, what would I say? I always try to put things into that perspective, so uh, if some trainees are listening to me, if some uh, younger uh, medical oncology aspirants are listening to me, uh, my advice, one, one advice would be always, whenever we are interpreting 
clinical trial results, we should always think that there is a patient in front of me, and if this patient comes to me, mm-hmm. wha- how would I counsel about this particular drug? Right. So I thought about this drug, and what would I say? I would say that you have undergone surgery, uh, so this is an adjuvant treatment which is used in the hope of your tumor not coming back and you not dying sooner. So that is the purpose of adjuvant treatment. So we have adjuvant sunitinib approved. Now what does it do? If you take this drug, you'll experience toxicities. Mm-hmm. You'll experience financial toxicity. Mm-hmm. You'll have reduced quality of life. Mm-hmm. And it does not make you live shorter versus placebo. Because that's the, the, because that is how, yeah. how it was put. Right. They said it had no, no detriment. detrimental effects yeah, on overall right. survival. Right. So that means it does not make you live shorter than placebo. Right. And who would want to take that drug? And who would want to take that? By doing this work for a few years, um, gotten a range of responses. Some people really like it. Some people, obviously, it annoys them. And I think it annoys them because, you know, they're wedded to this narrative that I think is so clearly demonstrably false. One of the few times I feel like I've been successful is when we published a paper and we provided an estimate of something that had been discussed in a non-quantitative way, but we tried to estimate something. And I noticed uh, over time, no one conceded that they'd ever done anything wrong in the past, but they, I think, silently sort of adopted that kind of quantitative assessment that we put forth. Mm And so sometimes what I feel like is the best you're ever going to get is when, you know, people will silently move to your position, mm-hmm. perhaps even act as if they've always held that position. Um, mm-hmm. But that may be the best we're going to get. And if that's what you get, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. I'll take it because the the issue is is these issues. These issues matter for, for people who are in a very vulnerable state of life dealing with cancer. Um, often, not always, but often towards the end of life. Um, it's a vulnerable population. Um, there's um, a lot of actors here who I think are acting often disingenuously, have other motives driving them. I think some of them may be blind to some of those other motives, and that's what makes this such a tough space to, mm-hmm. to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that over the long run, not always, but in the long run, um, not always in the short run, but in the long run, common sense and data do prevail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the moment I stop feeling that way is the moment um, this podcast will be over. <laughs> you won't see many papers from me. Um, so I do hope that, you know, we can try to bend um, people's thinking a little bit on these issues. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I mean, I don't know how much of impact uh, my work will have on people, but I s- get emails and, and feedback from uh, colleagues whom I have never seen in person, uh, whom they, who know me only through my papers or through Twitter, uh, through other means, and then I get some email saying they learned something, they had a new perspective from this paper, uh, 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 they, they have started to think differently because of uh, that talk, uh, or some comments like that, then I feel all the effort is worth it. So even if we could change the way one new budding oncologist thinks about these whole issues, if we could inspire three new young generation people to 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 be serious about these issues if we could uh, change the way one billionaire philanthropist 
she's about uh, importance of cancer ground sat versus funding for moon sat for example then that's that's uh, all that matters uh, so inspiring one people somewhere making one person feel energized to take the issues somewhere that we have never even seen that we have never even met in person uh, then i think if if that happens then all this uh, efforts is worth it bishal gewali it's a pleasure to have you here on the plenary session people who want to get more common sense in oncology can read your blog at ecancer medicine they can follow you on twitter they can follow your publications with the portal group um, it's been a pleasure to have you here in oregon it was a pleasure to hear your grand rounds um, it's been a great pleasure to call you a friend and colleague these last few years it has been absolutely my pleasure i i feel very honored and very glad that i got this opportunity to come to oregon to to see you in your workplace <laughs> to see the plenary hq <laughs> and, and and probably be the youngest oncologist ever to give a plenary session that's true <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Lopez may not be happy about that. You've, you've passed it. You're the, you're the youngest oncologist to give a plenary session. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.